Thank you for listening to the Push Through Podcast. I'm your host, Keisha Reeves. I'm a licensed professional counselor here in Atlanta, Georgia, where I own a group practice specializing in maternal mental health. Here on the podcast, we talk a little bit about everything from pop culture to motherhood, womanhood, parenthood, and everything in between. So sit back, relax, and listen to a quick chat with me. And don't they let me when I Thank you for joining me for another episode of the Push Through Podcast. I am so excited to be joined with Dr. Janelle Pfeiffer, a licensed clinical psychologist. She is many things that we will get into, but one of the things is she's a PhD, she has a PhD in clinical and school psychology. She's also a licensed clinical psychologist. She's the founder and CEO of Center for Inclusive Therapy and Wellness, and she's also assistant professor of psychology at the University of Richmond. Thank you so much for joining us for the show. Oh, yes. I'm so excited to be here, and I'm just tired thinking about all those roles. (laughs) Why'd you have to remind me? (laughs) It's all this education and accomplishments that you have made. But um, thank you for meeting, and you are all the way in Richmond, and you were here previously in Atlanta, Mm -hmm. and we first got introduced virtually, Mm -hmm. because I reached out to you to be a speaker at the Black Maternal Mental Health Summit, and then ultimately, like, the Black Maternal Mental Health, and mental health space can be, Mm -hmm. like, small, and then we yeah. ended up meeting in different other spaces and, and yeah. other people and all of that stuff. But yeah. welcome. And before we get into your clinical work and talk about maternal mental health, where are you originally from? Oh, thank you for asking. So <laughs> I was uh, born and raised in Virginia, where I am now, but I grew up in Northern Virginia, actually. Mm-hmm. Nice. What was it like growing up in Virginia? Because that's still the South, but mm-hmm. North in Georgia. Oh yeah, Virginia has an identity crisis. It's it goes between the um, both. One of my uh, friends stated it really, I feel like cleverly the other day. It has a lot of the biases of the South, but the coldness of the North interpersonally. <laughs> so. <laughs> It's an interesting place to to grow up because there is such a mix of different identities, even within the state and a huge spread of the resources that are available um, and a lot of gaps that exist kind of within that community and within the culture. Virginia's got a lot going on and it's got a very complex history that it's still contending with. Um, I recently learned that where I am now in Richmond, like one in four Black Americans can trace their lineage back to um, Richmond, given its role in the transatlantic slave trade. So, yeah. Yeah. That that makes sense. Wow. That is, you know, it's so interesting when you're in those places where there's such rich history, it comes with so much, I don't know, reflection or energy, emotion, all. Pain. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. Together. Mm-hmm. I mean, the history is so alive in Virginia, and that was something that growing up I often had a complicated relationship with because a lot of Virginians are very proud of the role of like Virginia and the history of the founding of America. But then there was, especially when I was younger, this erasure of 
the um, the experience of Black Americans and the role in slavery and contending with, you know, who we are. But I know that shows up in Georgia too, but Virginia is not exempt just because it's a little further north. <laughs> I mean, that kind of reminds me of how before we started recording, we were talking about this book that I'm writing and mm-hmm. what it's like um, growing and up. And how I'm buying 10 ver- like copies of it <laughs> as soon as it's out. <laughs> Maybe 20. Um, how it is, you know, just being Black and growing up in the South and just like navigating that, what you said, like the erasing of your history, mm-hmm. navigating adulthood, gaining the knowledge that you can, putting the pieces together. I, I remember yes. when I had first started reading 1619 Project. Mm-hmm. And um, Nicole Hannah James was saying, Jones was talking about, um, you know, like in school, we knew a slave trade and then we showed back up at Martin Luther King. And there's yes. this gap of like, yes. well, where were we? Well, what were we doing? <laughs> <laughs> what, what was going on? <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So growing up there, navigating all of that, what kind of, led you to want to study psychology and mental health? Mm, yes, so many things. I, I'm in love with this field. Um, and I think that it's tied to the fact that I'm absolutely fascinated by humans and I care deeply about the human experience. And I love how psychology gives us the opportunity to have the individual relationship and have a, like a close intimate, almost sacred space that you share with someone as they're sorting through their challenges, their identities, their goals, and meaning in this way that feels very impactful at an individual level. And then I love how psychology zooms out and you get to look at the systems and influences in which individuals function. So that combination is just a really good fit for how my brain works. And particularly like the research side of my brain I often talk about the fact that I'm a nerd. I don't, I I like to see how humans function and then really dig into the why behind it. So it gives gives me a chance to attend to a whole bunch of parts of myself simultaneously. And I do, I love it. I love psychology. It's great. Yeah, it's definitely interesting. Did you know from day one that you wanted to be a clinical psychologist or was that kind of like figuring it out along the journey? Mm. No, I definitely didn't. And looking back on it, kind of related to the conversation we were having before, is this complicated process of a few things happening at once. One, I thought that I wanted to be a professional dancer. So that was the center of my life. I went to performing arts high school. I've danced since I was two years old. I love it. And so that was really where I poured a lot of my energy and attention. Um, And then two, I realized looking back that at each of those spaces where there was like a gatekeeping element, Mm -hmm. I didn't necessarily growing up get a lot of the mentoring that I should have to to know my full range of options. Um, Luckily, I have fantastic parents and I found wonderful adjunct mentors along the way. But even when I was applying for like, colleges and universities, I came in with my list and they were like, you shouldn't apply for those schools. Like those are out of reach for you. Um, Or, you know, then similarly, you know, at those different decision points. But so coming into psychology was something that I found 
later, as I loved the work, I loved the classes, I found myself naturally thinking about the topics that we would discuss. And, and I knew it was for me when I wanted to start to contribute to where I saw gaps, where I'm like, we're talking about this family therapy theory, and it feels like it's missing a lot when it comes to my lived experience and what I saw growing up in Black community. So um, I think that that's when it kind of came together, but it definitely didn't feel like, oh yeah, from day one, I knew what I was going to do. And it was this, 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 this. It was a little bit of a process of exploration, like struggling through and putting the pieces together over time. It's interesting that you had like a creative background because I do find that mental health and psychology, at least like when you're doing it from therapy standpoint or even Mm -hmm. in teaching how there is that creative Mm -hmm. creative piece you know like being Mm -hmm. able to see things from a different perspectives or a different approach or you know being innovative depending on who you're talking to or what the topic is and like your interventions and whatnot so Mm -hmm. you have a creative side to you that's awesome Oh, yes. I mean, and especially when people would try to put the pieces together, they're like, what does dance have to do with what I do now? But I see it as so deeply connected. Like psychology is art and science, like the process of being able to have your intuition and to improv, to start to put together an image of how people's like functioning is impacted by multiple pieces that are dynamically in this dance with each other. And I feel like my arts training gave me that framework and like really cultivated that and then paired it with discipline, right? Like dance requires like that ability to work towards a goal in an ongoing, dedicated, immersive, sometimes consuming way. So that combination, I'm like, oh yeah, dance perfectly prepared me um, for what I do now. You said that so perfectly. Um, Okay, so you found your way into your education and and what you wanted your career path. How did you get to Atlanta? How did I get to Atlanta, a city that I love, where uh, we were just talking before about how fantastic and rare Atlanta is as as a city. Um, But I came to Atlanta right after I finished my PhD. I went into my first tenure track position, and it, it was at an institution that I fell in love with, which is Agnes Scott College, which is in Decatur. Um, And it just was this real, um, the match between the institutional priorities, makeup, what the values and mission of the institution were, and what I was looking for at that time. So the uh, academic job market brought me to Atlanta, and I'm so glad it did. So how how long were you here before you then pitched back to Virginia? Yep. So I was in Atlanta from 2015 to 2021. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's a good a good amount of time. And I love Agnes Scott, and I love their campus. I love yes. like all of the work. So that that's good that you were here in that teaching aspect. And did you mm-hmm. start private practice on the side, or how did that all get integrated? Yep, definitely. So yeah, it's a special institution. Agnes Scott is great. Um, And I um, ended up getting, when I moved, I found, I started my position and found out I was pregnant pretty much (laughs) within the same week. 
Um, and I've been trying for a long time. My partner and I had been trying. And so it was really exciting, but it was a lot. Um, and then in terms of like thinking about getting like the license and clinical work, that was uh, always a part of what I, I knew that I wanted to be a part of my practice because I think that being actively in the clinical world makes me a better teacher because when I'm teaching psychopathology, my knowledge isn't stale. It's like being updated. I'm in the field. I'm immersed. I'm looking at best practice. It's evolving. Um, and the students really resonate with some of the like examples that you're able to give in de-identified way from the practice of doing it, not just speaking about it theoretically. And then, of course, it informs my research, too. So as I'm designing things that are looking at mental health and interventions, it's not purely from this sort of like scientific background divorced from the practice of it. So as I'm developing an intervention, I'm imagining what it would look like to implement as a clinician as well. So I knew I always wanted those pieces to exist together, teaching, research, and clinical work. And so it's uh, it's often in like the tiny corners of the time since my predominant work is my academic work, but the clinical work is like an essential heart of it. And so, yeah, I, I started doing that while at Agnes. Great. Now, like I said at the beginning, we met in the maternal mental health space. Your mm-hmm. own motherhood journey that grew your interest into maternal mental health, or was it something different? Oh yeah, I think I always had a interest in maternal and reproductive health generally, especially around the concept of equity, like and how to address what are glaring and unacceptable um, inequities that are present. Um, And so I've had interest in health um, equity for a while and disparities related work and what are the role of like what we consider to be like mutable factors or things that we can do to alter the, like alter some of those inequities. but that was kind of an intellectual level. But we all know you have all these concepts of what it is like. And then when you're going through pregnancy and birth yourself, it feels like it opened a whole yeah. other world. But I'm like, how has this world been existing that I never fully understood? Um, and so, yeah, my process of, you know, going through pregnancy, the like the stressors and the limits to the resources that were available, even as somebody in a position who had like the education, supportive community, partner, resources, to see how difficult it was with those in place just underscored for me how troubling and really at a crisis level the gaps are. And the recognition from the beginning of how much of, um, you know, it, children just start off at different points um, right out of the gate from before birth, right? Like um, that were that are determined by factors that have nothing to do with the potential of the child. And similarly for the, um, for the parents, that the factors that they're up against have nothing to do and are so unfair, um, really. And so I think my personal experience really underscored what I felt like were huge necessities and needs in the field and seeing my mental health journey through pregnancy, birth, and that postpartum period 
that oftentimes it just extends so much longer than we talk about. And it has so much more complexities in the way that it shifts all aspects of our psychological functioning, our sense of self, our community, everything. And it's something that I feel like was really minimized, which I was like, this need to do more work in this area especially when it looks when we're looking at black women like especially when we're looking at the needs of black women and families and it's it's so like you you said that so well like because it's so layered and even like when you were talking about your interest in like mental health and psychology and understanding like the gaps and things or how systems work and understanding like the complexities of it for black maternal mental mm-hmm. health and we were talking about how Atlanta is this Mecca, but the state of Georgia in general with our statistics mm-hmm. and how there is lack of care, education, shame mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. Black mothers. And then how we can be clinicians yeah. and be fully aware of, you know, what is, but still have our own experiences. Oh, yes. And it, it makes you think like, well, why isn't all therapists trained on mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. why are all OBs, birthing centers, hospitals, you know, providers having an, an, an on-site therapist yes. you know, that's not accompanied with your trimester appointments or whatnot? Mm-hmm. Like when you do like go through it, you're like, oh my God, like that is such a, a mind warp. And like your mind, literally your brain just changes and in, in yes. the impacts and environmental factors of it all. Mm-hmm. That you have. It is so much. <laughs> yes. Oh, like everything that you just said underscored cosine. <laughs> <laughs> now, was there anything specific about your own motherhood journey that mm-hmm. you really felt passionate about in working with clients or doing research on or, mm-hmm. or studying or speaking about because you just definitely identified with that aspect? Oh, yes, um, definitely. Um, so a few different domains of my personal experience informed my professional interest. Um, so one, in general, as a clinician, I focus a lot on PTSD and complex PTSD, especially in Black women and other women of color. Um, And so I'm really interested in the idea of like, what is the intersection between trauma and like specifically birthing trauma and the supports that we get around that and how that sort of shapes our functioning. And so like, I think that my experience of like looking for example, the the news articles that would be pushed to me when I was going through the birthing process that like were highlighting the um, maternal mortality crisis and black women dying in childbirth and the signalings of the feelings of helplessness of not being listened to, not being heard, not being attended to. So um, that definitely in my experience, I remember the level of anxiety, hypervigilance, like, feeling like this balance point between advocating for myself and wondering if I was overly stressing myself in a way that was going to harm my baby or myself and my outcomes. And just constantly feeling like all the messages that I was given were really deficit-based and focused on like, um, here are all the horrible things that are going to happen to you, right? 
And then after birth, like after like the birthing process, um, looking at how the follow-up for like women is just A, too little across the board and B, really missing like a culturally informed lens for the specific needs of black birthing people right like so being able to see like this idea of like coming in for a six-week checkup and like the automatic like redirection for many of us who like the time I felt like I was drowning like the emotional complexity and weight of what I was going through and the heaviness of navigating it even with this expertise and feeling like there wasn't as much information support resources or even attention and care like during this period so I got really interested in the concept of what does it look like to provide that sort of support comprehensively and in a way that like acknowledges the specific challenges of being a Black birthing person and parent. Love it. What, what, is, what is your approach or what do you say to clients that feel that, like that are ones who are constantly giving that messaging of the statistics and feeling mm-hmm. vigilant? Because, you know, like off the rip of just being a Black birthing parent, mm-hmm statistics are kind of held against you in comparison mm-hmm. to our counterparts mm-hmm. and you know that fear can sometimes overshadow the joy of creating mm-hmm. your family because you're immediately either worried if you're going to live if your baby's going to live or if all is well are we going to survive America like how do yes. I my child to exist in America so how do you help them redirect that or reframe that Mm. Oh, I mean, that is like, that was, that was framed. This is a big question. And I feel like it's the very complexity of the, and like at the heart of this work, how do you highlight the glaring inequities that are so pressing and highlight an empowerment-based framework, an asset-based framework, and also not treat those statistics as purely like suffering presented for suffering's sake. Mm-hmm. If you're going to present those disparities, then we're also thinking about, to me, it's important to pair it with like, and what are the protective factors? Yes. What are we doing about it? Because if you just keep repeating the same thing over and over again, I know for me as a Black mom, over time, I'm like, y'all know and you're still not doing anything about it, which makes me feel even more discarded, like, and more marginalized than I already was. So now you're adding on to my stress without necessarily solutions in place. And so... For me, getting into the field, I wanted to be a part of that protective factor and the buffer and be a part of this community of what we know is incredible, like community of Black birth workers who've created buffers of protection, right, and done it radically and transformatively, right, against the odds. And so when I'm working with my clients, it's it's often the balance of the both and that we use a lot in therapy where, yes, these statistics can be true and it's important for us to attend to. And at the same time, 
what does this mean for you? What are the assets you have? What are the resources? How does this identify that if you have these additional stressors that come as you are envisioning the future of your child's life, as you're going through your pregnancy, how do we make sure that you have twice as many resources? Mm. How do we tap you into community? How do we identify culturally informed providers who are going to be aware and not add to your stress with structural racism within the healthcare system? Where are the doulas that we're partnering with who are going to be like in your corner, supportive of you? What does the support group look like after birth where you're going to be in a community? And what is the role of your identity in selecting your um, support group? Like how who's going to be surrounded by you so that you can talk about your whole lived experience without having to filter, edit, tailor, right? What um, does it look like for us to be a part of that? And then moving forward, also choosing when and how to um, engage with information and put up barriers of protection for self. Um, so how do you turn off the information when it becomes non-helpful as well? Which is very empowering because it's like, how do you take your control back? What do you have control over? How can you create your team of support? How can you feel more confident and not have these statistics define your fate? Mm-hmm. Um, you said okay. that way more succinctly than me. That was good. <laughs> um, going back to what you said about um, birth trauma or just like it, experiencing trauma in general and as it relates to motherhood. Um, birth trauma, I feel like has definitely gotten more attention in recent years than it has like over the entire span of mothering or mothering. Um, and a lot of times people didn't have like the word to put to it repress. Um, and now that maternal mental health is getting more attention, whenever you do work with clients who may not have been able to put a name to what it was that they experienced. And their child may be six or seven or five now, and then becoming more educated or aware, or even just recognizing like triggers. How do you suggest, or how do you help them in kind of finding some, I don't want to say like healing, Hmm. um, but like progress over what it is that they've experienced? Oh, yes. Oh, I, I think. One of the first steps is being able to have the language. And I'm glad that we are having this conversation at a a more, a broader level. Um, Because oftentimes I think that there were spaces where people didn't feel validated to talk about their experience or were dismissed when they shared like the fear, the terror, that feeling of helplessness, of um, being in a position where there's something that was happening to your body and totally out of control, when there's pain, worry, like all of that horror that can show up for people, not always, but can. And having the language to validate and having somebody who says that was a traumatic experience. Like, and we know that traumas change the ways or can change the way that we see ourselves. We see others and we see the world and traumatic experiences, even those that happened years ago, have like lasting impacts and they kind of can show up in ways that are unexpected. And so being able to name and understand something as traumatic 
then helps. If you are five or like if you have a five and six year old now, being able to start to make some connections, right? Like of what might be some of the potential shock waves of that traumatic event that I wasn't necessarily putting together, but that en it enables me to have some understanding of self and then choose how I want to engage with that, right? Um, and so sometimes like that education is the first step then to determining what do we do? Like, how do we want to engage with that truth? How does it fit into your life and narrative? And again, always going back to this empowerment-based framework because recognizing your traumatic event isn't to, oftentimes people will sit there like, I can, nothing I can do about it now is over. Like I should be over it. That was years ago where in reality, we're engaging with your trauma so that you are empowered over it, right? Mm -hmm. That the more that you recognize what happened and how did it impact you? What did, what did that tell you about the world? How might that shape the way that you engaged with people who are close with you or in the healthcare system, even in the future? Like what might be some lingering concerns? How did that show up in your relationship, right? And shape how you were feeling and sleeping or whatever was going on. And the more understanding that we have, then you can choose how you want to engage with that part of yourself in the hopes of getting to a space where it's integrated within your identity with you feeling a sense of agency um, and understanding of your story that you own. Yes, yes. I um, spoke a bit ahead for someone who may not know that what they experienced was trauma what are some symptoms or something mm -hmm. that I might look out for or think about that could have been their experience to connect mm. with mm -hmm. yes and I was recently reading um, a paper out of Australia and it was estimating that in this sample um, how they define trauma that's almost half of the participants, so like 46% of the participants met criteria for their birth being traumatic in some sort of way. So I start off first by saying that this is potentially much more common than we might think. Um, yeah, this is still something that the research is getting a handle over, but some of the things that might be indicators of a traumatic experience, and I know that there are purists who look at the definition of what is a trauma. So the like the sort of most limited definition is looking at this I, this experience that leads to feelings of like horror and overwhelm, often related to an experience where you either have death or threatened death or serious injury or sexual violence of some sort. Mm -hmm. So that it's this you know, this feeling of you being in a position where you're, you have this th serious direct threat to self. Um, and we can see how in the birthing process that might show up with um, clients talking about, you know, there was a, um, a moment where they're moving me towards an emergency C-section and they're talking about, you know, the, the, this in that moment, I'm wondering, am I going to die? Is my baby going to die? Right? Like, or if there's just this threat of even serious injury, like this feeling of 
what's happening to me or to my body, especially in the spaces where people aren't explaining what's happening in a conscientious way. Or oftentimes people talk about feelings of violation for not being listened to, that things are being done to and not with you. Um, this feelings of not being listened to, as you were saying, the epidural didn't work. I'm still feeling pain and people being like, no, you aren't right. And people describing, I could feel like everything they were doing, it was it. They, it was hurting, um, and so these sort of experiences that are really make sense when we think about like the most like vulnerable state that we can be in, and within a system that often discounts what Black women say about their body and what's happening to them, that isn't necessarily slowing down to bring you in as the leader of the experience, like the person who best knows what's going on. And so oftentimes when I'm talking with people and we talk about birth experiences, they might be minimizing their trauma because we've been taught intergenerationally that this is just how it is. Right. Oh yeah, like the doctor made that decision, didn't talk to you about it, of course. Or, oh yeah, you know, they used an implement that was extremely painful for you and often unnecessary. That's just what they had to do, right? To use forceps, right? Like all of these sorts of things when it's like, nah, that's actually just because there's a normalization of trauma doesn't mean that it's any less traumatic. Absolutely. I, I love how you, you, you said that because I think that people do kind of minimize it because it's like, well, you had a baby. I mean, having babies are, you know, painful. Like that's just a part of the process. Like you're alive, you're, you know, mm -hmm. you're healthy. Or people equate trauma as some sort of sexual assault or mm -hmm. a near-death experience. And trauma can be defined by the person who experiences it. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and mm -hmm. to go back to like why, what I said that about healing, um, healing is also very subjective because it's mm -hmm. not for me to say like, okay, do X, Y, and Z and you're healed. Mm -hmm. Take a year and you're healed. Mm -hmm. um, it's definitely a journey. For those who are seeking any type of healing or progression or work on their birth trauma um, experience, in addition to going to therapy, is there anything else that you recommend that they could do to help with those feelings of, you know, when you think back at your birth story and there's a disconnect, mm -hmm. you, you cry you know, yes. we're looking at certain pictures or talking mm -hmm. about it and you want to have some, some form of peace with that. Yeah. What do you suggest? Ooh, yes. I mean, and I think that you pointed out some good signs too, where if, when you talk about your birth story, that brings up strong emotions. If when you think about I even have some clients who've decided not to have other children because they're like, I could not go through that again. Or when I think about getting pregnant and giving like giving birth again, I can't go through that, right? Those are all signs that this might be something worth returning to. And like you said, there's therapy to be able to process through that with somebody whose expertise is in the intersection of your identity, your racial, your cultural background, um, and the perinatal and birth process. And um, and then there's also these sort of other things that you can do to care for yourself, like being able to go through a support group and processing, being able to tell your story, right, especially to people who will listen and hear it. Um, one of the ways that trauma is maintained is through avoidance. Mm -hmm. So 
when something horrible happens to us. Say that again. (laughs) Say that again. (laughs) One of the ways trauma is maintained is through avoidance. Like, and it makes perfect sense that when something horrible happens, your knee-jerk reaction is, all right, so I just won't talk about that. But what it ends up doing is perpetuating the symptoms, making them last longer and more severely, where the utility of telling your birth story, if we're just looking at it, you know, from that standpoint is that you get the chance to have exposure to repeating something. And especially if that's paired with what we think of as like these healing safe responses. So if you're in a space where you're able to share what happened and you get validation, you get support, you get care, that is important. Um, Also being able to think about sort of practices that help us regulate our, um, our central nervous system, which is when we experience trauma, our whole fight or flight and threat response gets activated. So the, the types of pro, like the types of practices that help us learn how to soothe our central nervous system, which might now be super on edge, right? Like after we experience a, like a threat, it's hard for us to get out of that mode of being like hypervigilant, looking for what might harm me, irritable, agitated, not trusting, right? That's a totally natural response from a trauma. So the things that help signal safety to our body are great too. So whether that's doing breathing exercises or Tai Chi or going on walks or doing mindfulness, art, the sorts of things that we know helps regulate our biological systems that might be in distress from what's happened to us. And I think for Black women, they're the sorts of practices that we've always been told are fluffy and not for us. Like, who has time to be doing yoga? Why do you do yoga? Why why are you there? Why are you in Pilates? You're going to be breathing it? Like, you know, like, who's got time? You're going to go on a hike? Like, what is happening here? But really, these are all like these time-tested ways and being able to figure out what's true to you. Like, what are these things that create the sense of safety and put you in a space where you are able to start to build your own narrative around what happened to you with um, that empowerment um, where your story and the trauma becomes a part of the story, but it isn't the total defining feature of the things that you do and the way that you feel after it. I love Janelle, that is so well said. Ah, I love it. Are you, I mean, I know like you are um, teaching in Virginia right now. Are you still doing virtual sessions? Oh, yep. Yes. So I still see clients. I still keep a a caseload of clients and, you know, doing our trauma processing and like maternal mental health and all sorts of other things. Are you doing any groups, workshops, or any other trauma work outside of individual therapy? Yeah, so I do some workshops um, and I do trainings around trauma-informed institutions, especially. So looking, I'm constantly kind of, like I said before, toggling between being able to do the work individually and then also looking to help equip systems to um to create environments that are responsive to and reduce the incidences of trauma. Mm-hmm. So, cause there's some stuff that we can do individually, but in my hope and my dream is in the long term that we have healthcare systems where birth trauma is non-existent, right? 
that they that people are educated on how to approach their work in such a way that creates safety so that we're not trying to mop up after the fact what's been done to people often against their will absolutely have you seen um the show that was on fx Flyersman is in trouble have you seen that show no i haven't should i um it's with it's been a lot of talk like throughout the listserv with mm-hmm. support international but it's with um claire danes mm-hmm. and i cannot think of the actor's name but he was he played mark zuckerman in the facebook movie um mm-hmm. and he the show kind of starts off with him going through a divorce from claire danes and them having mm-hmm. like joint custody and you don't understand why she seems so detached like she mm-hmm. Um, seems very selfish she kind of dumps the kids on her and she just kind of seems like flighty and then the story tells like the backstory that she had experienced birth trauma mm-hmm. it was so traumatic for her and then she also had already history of being experiencing trauma oh, and, yes. um, and then not getting the support that she needed after she had the baby and then feeling that loss of self and like yeah. tragedy the loss of the life and just mm. the freedom that she had before all wrapped into one yes kind of like explain how she was a detached parent mm-hmm. marriage failed and she was just kind of just figuring it out mm-hmm. so you know it's, it's like we were saying like it's good that it's getting more attention and people are putting the names and the words to things um to understand it because i think sometimes people would just like judge or mm. such a bad mother or how could you but not really like giving grace and understanding that people repress and people yes. kind of just do the best that they can with what they know how if they have oh, yes. things set up or support there or even him as a parent a co-parent and not knowing how to show up for her having gone oh. yes okay I'm gonna watch this show I'm <laughs> like putting it on my list Right now, I'm going to watch this for sure, um, because I do feel that, like, understanding, and that's where, like, a trauma-informed perspective is so important, because if you understand the root of the behavior, and that's one of the weird things, especially trauma in Black women, it shows up in ways that people often misunderstand, right? And so they're missing what's the underlying root, and, and it's just... It's such a missed opportunity. Right. I always tell people when you think about like how historically or within our culture, how our mothers used to parent and, Mm -hmm. you know, they had harsher punishments Mm -hmm. and they weren't emotionally intelligent or Mm -hmm. a conscious parent. There was no concept of self-care. There Mm -hmm. was no meditation for them. There was no let me go do some breathing exercises and go garden so I can calm down. They were yeah. often stressed. They were not hurt. You know, they had several roles in the household. Mm-hmm. Out care was their sole responsibility. They didn't have mm-hmm. a co-parent often. Mm-hmm. And generationally, you know, we're in a better place where we can choose how many kids that we want to have mm-hmm. or the providers that we want to have, the insurance that we want to have or all of those things. But there's still gaps, like you said, oh, yeah. still progress being made at the same mm. time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, and like you said, that puts Black 
parents often in a position of charting a new course and trying to build a template for what we want that to look like, um, what we want our birth processes to look like, what we want, how we want to engage with self-care and therapy. We're kind of in this new uncharted territory, which is exciting and scary at the same time. Um, okay. Thank you so much. Um, how can our listeners find you and find all of your work? How can they learn more from you after this conversation? Oh, yeah. Well, definitely check me out. I'm on Instagram and TikTok. I'd like to continue this conversation. It's a good way to connect. And I always like to hear and just really keep the conversation going. So on Instagram and TikTok, I'm at Dr. Janelle Well. And you can also find me on my website, which is www.pyphersychology.com. So yeah, let's keep talking. And I really appreciate you having me here today, Keisha. This is wonderful. Thank you so much, Janelle. It's it's so, so wonderful to hear about all of your wealth of knowledge and expertise. And your training has done well and your passion speaks for itself. This is the work that I wake up thinking about, and I'm excited that we're making progress. And I see like people like you, Keisha, changing the field and really moving along the way that we're responding to Black mothers. And it's exciting to be a part of a community of incredible people who are changing the narrative, flipping the script. Yeah, it's like